Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Super excited to have a second time uh, appearance here on The Moment by a uh, world-class writer, director, and producer, Judd Apatow, uh, whose new film, King of Staten Island, I watched this weekend. And uh, man, what a great thing to get to see. Congratulations. Thank you. I was an early guest on the show, right? Pretty early in, in the run. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about this. I went back and looked just before we started. It was 2015, man. And this is kind of where I wanted to start with you, which is the world was entirely different uh, yeah. when we talked in 2015. That's and, true. And, and so I kind of want to talk to you about life as, you know, because as I said to you last time, uh, it's funny, Judd, I mean, you and I are not friends, but we, had, we, we have so many friends in common that we, we know each other. In we're, a, friends, but we, certain we're not friends, but we should be, but we don't know what to do about it. Yes, exactly right. But we have like a full, well, because we're just in the same world all, all the time um, and have a real affinity for one or I have a real affinity for you. And, and I, I do look at you as someone who I watch you navigate the world through these difficult times. And I... I get a lot out of seeing the way your value system has been interacting with the world for the last four years. Uh, because I see somebody who's uh, b- feels as buffeted by all of this as I do and feels a similar duty to like do whatever little pieces he can to try his best when he has the strength to, to help. And uh, I'm just wondering like, even podcasting almost feels wrong now. Like, what do you? What is your self talk around continuing to do the work that you do in a world that's like on fire? I, I have uh, three minds on all of this. One is, I have a real sense that we're all supposed to be really loud right now, and so as someone who Thinks about the Holocaust way too much. Yeah, as yes, as we do here in our house. Yes, I have a general feeling that there were times in our history, in our country, and other countries where people were just quiet. And whenever you think, how did that happen there? How did that happen there? Most of it is people standing by and not making a lot of noise and not complaining and not getting involved when something terrible was developing, and that just was a feeling like, oh, I'm supposed to be loud and even obnoxious, and I may lose a lot of people who might like me, but maybe that doesn't matter at all in the grand scheme of things. I just need to sound the alarm. And then at the same time, you know, there's always that part of your mind that's like, is that doing any good, and would it be better to just quietly do benefits for people and support in quiet ways, people who are really getting stuff done, like I like to do things with the ACLU because they're in the courts and most of this happens in the courts or supporting certain politicians. But generally, I try to do that in addition to being loud because it just feels morally wrong to not be part of the collective voice. And sometimes I think, well, does my voice even penetrate in any way? But then I try to think of it like we're all waves on the ocean. Like we all have to be doing <laughs> yeah. it. You know what I mean? Like it, like it doesn't matter if I penetrate because we need everyone to penetrate. Like we're all in this, right? And so everyone needs to do it. And, I, and if I don't do it, then anyone could not do it. And I think that it's definitely 
been something that creates problems at times, but so so worth it. You know, you do lose people there. People are just like, I'm not going to watch your stuff anymore. Uh, and then I think, well, I don't know if you, if your world is about saying uh, sick people shouldn't wear a mask. I, I, maybe I don't care. Maybe maybe it doesn't matter. And I and I'm certainly in a position. You know, I'm I'm in my fifties. I've done a lot of work. It can all go away at this point. And I was able to say a lot of things that I I don't have that terror about that that I would have had as a younger person. Right, but then what? So then I I agree with every word you just said. Uh, I, you know, and I made a pretty conscious decision as this season of Billions was um, about to air the first half of the season because we got interrupted by COVID. That um, I was still going to speak out, and if that meant that some people campaigned against people watching the show, I was going to deal with it. You know, uh, I couldn't. You know, there's a, an argument to be made to to, to uh, sort of get quieter in these certain key moments, but I, I felt like it would be just totally inauthentic. And also, as you said, I feel like you have to scream fire when you see the fire. You can't hope that you wait till they get to the quiet part of the movie and then, all right, well, we saw that and now we can let, you know, we can stop everyone before the fire takes over. So I, I did the same thing, but then... What's your talk to yourself about, well, I'm still going to go do this work instead of devoting all my time. You know, I'm still going to go make a comedy that has feelings as opposed to you yeah. know, spending all my time. How do you get it up to, 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 to think that what we do matters? I think it's hard, but what my wife, Leslie, always says to yes. me is that I can have more impact just making what I make in terms of in whatever way art helps people find their love and their compassion and their concern about other people, that that's what the work is about. And the totality of the work hopefully has changed some hearts. And that, you know, it sounds corny, but it is, it is one of the main reasons you do it. You want people to think about how they affect others. You want to think about the ways we're separated. You know, I think a lot about Shandling now. I think about what sure. Shandling uh, yes. would say. And, you know, there's a thing in Buddhism, which is the illusion of separateness, that you have to get over the illusion of separateness, that we are all connected, we are all one. And a lot of uh, conservative and Republican thought is uh, a, a real... Uh, Darwinian, Ayn Randian, every man for himself, survival of the fittest philosophy. And the truth is that that will lead to our demise. If we don't lift each other up, we're going to destroy ourselves in one way or, or another. For instance, if you're just a wealthy person and you don't care about climate change and you don't care about your kids and your grandkids and, and, and it's just not your priority, then then the world is not going to survive. If, if, so you need everyone to, to join together and make sacrifices. You know, I, I'm always amazed by like, politicians who don't ask people to just, I don't know, drive less or use less water. Like, you don't even hear those messages in the culture anymore about anything affecting anything. Yes, and, and I, no, I, I agree with that. And, and I think the way that, that um, sometimes it seems when they think about... Uh, 
they're the you know things like the grandkids it's like well if i can uh, amass generational wealth i can pass it on to the grandkids and they can insulate themselves from yes any of this stuff. they can create their bubble in the middle of the woods that no one can get into so how do you manage <laughs> but how do you manage that because like you know you you've been and and i i mean i hadn't thought about this but when we said it you know, I mean, you've amassed something like generational wealth. And so how do you think about, not about your personal giving, I know you're a very charitable person, but how do you do the math in your own head about, and I was thinking about it watching your incredibly talented and amazing actor daughter in the movie. She kills it. I mean, she's tremendously great. Thank you. But how do you think, she really is. I mean, she really is a standout um, and has always been great on, on online and everything. But this movie really is uh, a great sort of like... Um, introduction to her to a bigger part of the world as this person who can really hold down the screen and look and, you know, be really intelligent and all that stuff. Uh, and, but, but I, I have to think you, you and Leslie gave it a lot of thought before casting her in such a big part and sort of, you know, these ideas of generational stuff passing forward like that, it, it has to cause, I imagine you think a lot about, well, how do I help her become a contributing member of society and what is the downside of also allowing this to happen? Like, how do you do that? How do you weigh all that? I mean, I have a very simple theory about all of that, which is, you know, a cobbler's kids make shoes. And so for my kids to go into the same industry as me is natural as a lot of doctors and their kids become doctors. And that's, and that's fine. I mean, we all love Schitt's Creek and that's because Eugene Levy's son, Dan Levy (laughs) created that show. And they all do it together. And Sean Penn's parents were, you know, uh, you know, in filmmaking and, and directing and acting. And, you know, that's, you know, that's just part of what it is. So I, I never really think about that part of it. I do think about, uh, you know, wanting my kids to be good people, to care, to, to be involved, to be involved politically in a way that, uh, that they're comfortable with and to be good people. I don't mind paying taxes, and I wouldn't mind paying a lot more taxes. And I've always felt that way. That's, that's yes. really what it comes down to. And if there was a gigantic estate tax, I would have no issue with that at all. I mean, obviously, something's going wrong in the country when the wealth of the, uh, of the I, I wealthiest totally. people is... Yeah, you know, all the money's going to the richest people. There, I read a... a no, I was listening to a podcast about this the other day, and it was about how uh, it was on Sam Harris's podcast, and it was about meritocracy, and it basically said that it doesn't really work anymore because the people at the top have the system so figured out and gamed at this point that it isn't a meritocracy, that you're never going to get rid of the people at the top because they have it all figured out in terms of their education, in terms of opportunity in terms of how they run things. So I, I've always right. said, I'm happy to pay taxes. I'm happy to look at all changes. He, let me tell you what I don't like, Brian. I've sat with people, wealthy people, complaining about their taxes, talking about, let's move to Florida because the tax yes. rate's lower. And I'm like, my God, you are like so wealthy. And you literally are sitting here bitching about your tax rate. Like you'll never spend your money. You don't. You you have houses with with uh, help in them, waiting for you to show up. And maybe you show up three weeks a year. And those same people are bitching about tax rates. 
And there's something deeply wrong about that. You know, when, you know, when we're about to have a trillionaire, you know, in this country, the world doesn't work. And all those people who said, we're going to give our money to charity, we're going to give all our money to charity. Remember that? The agreement? Uh, yeah. All of, of them got richer in the last bunch of years since they said that. Every single one of them's wealth has gone up exponentially. In the last three months, the richest people in the world got so much richer. The system serves them because they get it. They understand something and they have such a head start. And it's all shared information. It's all some form of kind of insider. I don't know if trading is the right word, but having so much inside information that kind of crony capitalism becomes so immoral. And, you know, I think we all should start thinking about that because it relates to everything that people are protesting about, which is the system doesn't let people rise. That's true. Our, I mean, our, 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 you know, Chappelle talks about it beautifully. And I mean, our TV show is about that. And, um, we, each season of the show has, has, has made this, this more clear, like we've consciously sort of stripped away a bunch of stuff. So I, I, I agree with you. And I think the taxes thing is easy for somebody to sort of ignore, but it's really, it's really valid, which is that people who have money, who their biggest, their sort of entire reason for choosing who to vote for is to pay less taxes are um, ignoring all the structural inequality in the system. So I I think that's perfect. And they've convinced everyone else that they're going to get rich. I mean, they've got people who are never going to have the money of Bill Gates think, I don't want that tax rate for people who earn more than $50 million to be too high because I might be there one day. Well, that's the aspirational part of the American dream, for sure. That's just baked in culturally, and it's really hard to defeat that. I mean, that's that, you know, that question. But so for you, making the work matter, just to return to this, because I had a thought watching Staten Island, which is, when I was thinking about the conversation you must be having with yourself about all the things that, all the sort of the, the full focus that has to go into a movie that you're going to write and direct and how you decide to make it still matter to you while the world's on fire. I was then listening to that, fi- the convo that, the, you know, that the movie's having the whole time, which is about what is it worth, what is it worth sacrificing for and what are you sacrificing? And what should the people who uh, are left behind, how do they square the legacy of someone who sacrifices? And I'm, I'm wondering if that conversation, you know, which starts at the baseball game and which carries through to the end of the movie, really, um, it's a great shot of Burr, you know, on the fire truck heading to um, heading to fight the fire and, and going in. Uh, how consciously did that resonate for you as a sort of central question in this time where the sense of duty seems to be very far away from the way many people are thinking about, you know, living in the United States? Well, I started thinking about this idea years before we started writing this movie. I, and this, you know, sometimes you feel like you've been preparing to write something. I don't know if you've had this experience where it's just you feel something bubbling up in yes. you. So yep. w- around the time I did the podcast with you, in 2015, I kept thinking, what, what don't I write about? And it occurred to me that I didn't write about sacrifice. And 
for me, that's not a common thought. You know, I'm a comedy person. A lot of my work has been about coming-of-age stories, or I like to write about relationships and why they're difficult and how our, you know, our different life histories and traumas make it so complicated. And I was thinking, well, you never write about sacrifice. So what would that be? And then I wrote a movie with a friend about returning soldiers from Afghanistan, and I wasn't sure that it, it was where it needed to be. Uh, and then I, re- I started trying to write a play about people getting out of jail and what that experience is like and how hard society is on them. And I did a lot of research on that and wasn't sure how to do it. And then I met Pete, and he started talking about his dad. And he was talking a lot about how it was hard for him to deal with the fact that his father was willing to die for strangers. And what did that mean for him and his family? And we talked about this for years. You know, what does it mean when you're dedicated like that? And then I met all these firefighters. And then I met all these firefighters who lost friends on 9-11. And I realized that they, had, that they were kind of happier than most people I know. That they had a feeling of comfort in their life's purpose. And their right. energy was different than Hollywood people and writers and actors and directors and executives. They seemed comfortable. Not that they don't have problems and a lot of the same problems as everybody else, but they had an energy that was very different. And one thing that I tried to do in the movie, in a subtle way, is to just show that they're, they're all feeling pretty good about themselves. They have a... a, a I, I, I don't even know if I want to call it self-esteem, but they have a... But it's like a comfort in their skin in a way because they know that, that they're actually engaged in serving. Yes. And, and in a way, that's what I hope the movie says to people, maybe it's even on an unconscious level, that we do need to serve each other. We do need to sacrifice for each other. And we're not going to be able to make the world better or even survive it. If we don't, we have to be there for each other. And a fireman is a, you know, it's a metaphor for everything. He, Bill Bird jumps in the building and Pete watches Bill walk in a building on fire. And that's what the movie is about, you know, trying to understand what that means. And yeah, yeah that's it, like uh, that, 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 that was one of my favorite moments in, in the, in the picture was when, when Buscemi, whose casting was, I just got to, I'll, I'll ask you about that. But when Buscemi, who I know was a fireman, all that stuff, when Buscemi looks over at Pete and is like, they got it. These guys know what they're doing. And there was this thing about this legacy. And, and you know, Buscemi is, can't go in anymore. His body, you don't even say it, but it's clear. He can't go in there anymore and do it. But yeah. he's served. He's done it. And I just thought there was something so gorgeous in that in that so human and gorgeous and in what was being communicated in, in that moment. And I love that you didn't have a big, big scene of Buscemi talking about how much he wished he could still get in there and do the thing because he had, he played it with a kind of a calm of I've done it and I can let the next guys do it now that I thought was a, 
Beautiful. Did you guys talk about it, you and Steve at all, or he just bring that? Is that just the energy he brought? That, that is the energy he brought. And we didn't even talk about it in terms of that he wouldn't be allowed to do what they were doing. We just said, well, what job would this guy have? And we did want right. him to be able to talk to Pete. And he said, well, he would be uh, the chauffeur, is what it's called, the person who drives the truck. And there is a soulfulness to Steve Buscemi which uh, is very powerful. He does have that spirit. He was a firefighter in Little Italy in the early 80s before his acting career took off. And we knew that he would have that, you know, that warm energy that would be important for Pete because some of what the movie about is about is almost a reparenting of Pete's character. That by being around these people, he is learning lessons that he, need, he needs to learn to move forward. And it was powerful for Pete to be in a firehouse for weeks at a time. He hadn't spent that kind of time at a firehouse since his father died. He said he used to go to these yearly 9-11 memorial dinners, but then he stopped because it was getting too sad for him. So I think being around the community was very healing for him, just in making the movie and doing the research and everything uh, yeah, even, around it. Even just going, going back to this notion of sacrifice, because as you were talking about about this it's like if i think about pretty much maybe not every president but most of the presidents in our lifetime before this one i believed uh put to the test would sacrifice like would do the thing they had to do to sacrifice i'm talking about both parties you know yeah and uh this is the first one who it's so clear like you know i disagreed with every single policy that both george bushes have but, like, there's no doubt to me that in a certain kind of situation, those guys would have thrown their body in front of something to save a kid, for instance. Yes. yes. This is, like, the first guy I could think of who you just doesn't have... It's just not in his wiring, right? As an artist who looks and studies people, Judd, do you... Like, do you look, don't you look at this guy and think, like, there's just no way he would sacrifice himself for somebody else? Here's a detail I noticed during the election... You know, they would play, you know, these old interviews with him, like from Howard Stern. And there was a, a section in one of them where he was just bragging about having never changed one diaper. And right. as anyone who's a parent knows, that's the best. You know, that, that's the best moments of having a baby is being uh, caring for your baby. Like there's nothing weird about changing diaper. There's nothing gross about it. It's kind of the coolest thing in the world. There's nothing it, it, weird about getting up. Yeah, you know that he didn't get up with his kids either in the middle of the night. Yeah, and you know he didn't do change the diaper during the day. And so, <laughs> so the strangeness of not wanting to be part of something that personal and intimate and loving is so weird, but then just wanting to brag about it as if it makes you a man. And in a way, it's the same as telling people not to wear masks. It's the same thing. Like, I don't look tough. Like, I don't look tough changing a diaper. There's something wrong with this person. I mean, he is a malignant narcissist. This isn't just, he's not like a character. He's not just like a, you know, a unique man. There is really something wrong with his mind. Someone hurt him. Someone broke him. He doesn't have that empathy and compassion that you need in a leader. And he, and he also just doesn't make any sense. And I, I feel like people now finally are getting it, and even people who supported him in much larger numbers can see it. But I think it has been obvious to anybody who's paid attention to him 
uh, even as a celebrity from day one. He was always a weirdo, and that's what was fun about The Apprentice, is that his opinions didn't make sense, that he would lash out at people for reasons that you didn't see coming. He took strange angles at how he judged people, and you were fascinated by it, not because the game was logical, but because you had this demented man at the center of it. That's a brilliant take. I mean, I could never bring myself to watch it. I don't I mean, you're from Long Island, right? Yes. Where are you from? Uh, yeah, Syosset from Long Island, or yes. Aren't you from Long Island? Like, I'm like, from yeah. Syosset, yeah. Right, and you know, I'm from Roslyn. So like, I mean, we grew up 12 minutes from each other. So for me, those characters, I just knew guys like that my whole life. So it's very easy for me to understand exactly the ways in which I wouldn't trust. And it's so confusing to me. You know, those were the guys you would see in those North Shore restaurants and who, you know, cared about where they sat in those restaurants and you would watch them. No, you know, you would watch them uh, bragging about who they were or their conquests and stuff. And you just knew what they were. And all these, it's, it's shocking to me that so many people just didn't grow up kind of aware of that species of con man. You can't grow up where you and I did without knowing exactly what that is. Well, I read all of his books. Now, I know he doesn't write his books. Right. He brings on the ghostwriter, and maybe they chat a little bit, or you know, someone in his world you know, uh, fills them in on his yeah. opinions. But in one of his books, he has an entire page where he lists the great ways we treat immigrants in detention facilities. And he's mocking that people uh. want to be treated humanely. The, the idea that they want to use a phone, the idea <laughs> that they would like to, you know, to maybe have a television there or to eat <laughs> in a healthy way. And it's all in the book before... You know, you know, this was before he was elected. You know, how extreme and how vicious he is. And, of course, a guy who doesn't lose sleep about putting kids in cages does not know how to respond to racial problems in the country. I mean, he's the guy who cages kids. And that really hasn't changed. I, I mean, in the middle of these riots, the amount of uh, executive orders he's he's put through in all sorts of uh, areas, the environment, uh, how we handle immigration, then they're all despicable. And it makes you wonder, does he even know they're happening? Is it just Stephen Miller quietly saying, hey, Donnie, I'm going to push this one through while everyone's busy. And you don't really know how much of a puppet he is because he doesn't, he doesn't seem like he has a real mastery of facts or even the choices that the, the government is making it's more like he's he's in he's in the web of a, a bunch of sinister minds and he's sinister well, and and it just gets pushed forward well as a movie character he's sort of like a dumber version of victor maitland you know and uh you know from beverly hills cop which is i think he would find what he perceives as weakness to be funny almost yes, and yes. um he, there's a sadistic glee in it. So I think Miller can wink at him in a way that lets him know you're going to like this. And then he, he goes along with it. All right. I don't, we don't have to, uh, we don't have to go the whole way on this, but, um, well, let me say something I did positive read, on yeah, this. I'd like to say one thing positive because it's also negative. As, as troubling as it is when the world erupts. Yes. You know, things are changing. Things are moving. It's like something was clogged and, you know, we'll see how far it goes. 
But like the Me Too movement, you feel this explosion of sentiment where people are saying, enough's enough, what can we do? And now is the moment where we go, all right, well, what are the rules for cops? If someone is running away, what is the rule? When do you use a rubber bullet versus a real bullet? Uh, You know, how do we hold officers accountable? And people are beginning to educate themselves about the specifics of this that that most people probably haven't before. And so at least there's... Yeah. Big conversations happening and an election right on the, the, the heels of it. I agree with you. But I was thinking about, you know, why this movie got you to actually come and direct it and write it. And, and I did read it as in some way reacting, in some way, right, this... This idea of noble sacrifice being, I could see why it resonated for you. And then I was thinking about these movies that, that, that you've worked on over the past few years as a producer, too. You know, I was thinking about Kamel and Emily's movie and Gullman's documentary and this. And, and I was thinking that there's something that attracts you to these stories of people who weren't really seen for who they could be or what they could be and or were limited somehow by the place they came from. You know, Kumail and Gary and Pete were sort of limited by certain expectations that were put on them. And 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 you help tell these stories that uh, articulate this stuff. I mean, Gary obviously wrote his himself, but there was something in the fact that you decided uh, you you were touched by his stories and this thing he went through. What is it do you think that in in their work that that draws you in when you when you when you find some you know someone like Kamal and Emily or Gullman or Pete because as you know Gullman I mean my wife and I were intimately involved in Gary's journey I mean I don't know if you know but you know I when, know, when yes, Gary yes. when Gary talks about his friend Amy yes, that's I my wife yeah. you know who saves yeah. him that's my wife and 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 so what is it about them that 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 draws you in do you think. You know, it's funny because I only recently started connecting the dots as to what what I've been working on and what it might mean for my mental state. Uh, I, you know, I think as a person who loves comedy, you start out just trying to be funny. And so for me, you know, I made a summer camp movie and I worked on Cable Guy. And then I worked with Shan Ling, who taught me a lot about digging deep into your personal material Right. Uh, and, and trying to reveal the core of people. And he talked a lot about, you know, people who love each other, but something gets in the way. And I don't know if I understood it as deeply as I do now when I was working there. I, I don't think I did. I think I was still living in what's the funny way to do this. And then right. I think on Freaks and Geeks, I learned something from Paul Feig, who really understood... Yeah you know, the, the sorrow in being unseen and that these kids were so special, but they were treated like they were garbage. And I felt that way as a kid. I didn't feel like, I didn't feel like mistreated. I just felt left out. All my friends were athletes or part of other cliques. And I felt like no one really likes what I like. And I'm not really valued that much for this interest in comedy and 
and, and what I wanted to do. But I think it all turned in a big way, probably with Lena, who was so brave about saying, this is exactly who I am. Here's who, I'm going to be naked emotionally. I'm going to be naked physically. And I, I understand how people feel about it. And I'm going to tell stories and satirize, you know, my world. And then she talked about mental illness and obsessive compulsive disorder in a very brave way. And I think that made me realize, oh, you can go so much deeper than I even thought. Wow, uh, right. And that led to working, you know, with Amy, uh, who, yep. who talked about some difficult subjects, like her father having MS. Uh, yes. And, and I think it related to everything. You know, Kristen Wiig and Andy Mumolo, you know, talking about being women and not feeling like they had measured up and their careers weren't working well uh, and they weren't married yet as, as the characters in Bridesmaids. You know, this, you know, this shame. Yeah. Uh, and Leslie, my wife, always talked about how women were not represented well in show business and that the scripts were all terrible and shallow and it was very hard for women. So for me, I thought, well, I'd love to be a part of that change. And then when I met Kamail and Emily, I think I realized, oh, there's a way for me to make stories about communities I am not in if I partner up with people. And that changed a lot of it for me. Because I wanted to do it. I wasn't sure how. And I thought, I'm not a good enough writer to talk about other people's experience, which I haven't had. And I thought it would offend people <laughs> as well. And so I think I slowly figured out a way to team up with people to make movies about underrepresented people or, or ideas. Does the... Uh does the obligation that you commit yourself to ever feel really heavy to you as you get older and realize how hard it is to like push the boulder up the mountain? Because, you know, when you say to someone, okay, let's write this, I'm going to get in there with you. I'm going to, it is like, it's such a big commitment and it, and it, it, um, like I've had experiences along this line where, where it, it, it sometimes can feel, gosh, I don't want to let these people down, sure. you know? Sure. Do you do you feel that? Do you feel the weight of that ever? I I do completely, and I don't know if it's healthy or unhealthy, but it certainly wakes you up in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> after, yeah, dude. Yes, it does. After keeping you up at night, you know, because if Pete is going to say, "I am willing to share." my deepest trauma with you for us to create a movie that hopefully is good and funny, but also touches people and helps people process their grief. If the movie's bad, it's the worst movie in the world. You, you know, when right. people really mess that up and you don't get the tone right and it's whatever, too sentimental or corny or whatever, it's an embarrassment. It's a massive embarrassment. And I always felt that way working with my family, like, if this is bad, it's really oh, yeah. bad. And right, of course. I also know it's, you have to be in that terrain to do something great. You can't do something great unless you're taking that risk. That's why I was so proud of Pete, because he was taking as big a risk as you can take. Because it is, you know, based, you know, it's fictional, but it's based on the feelings of him and his mom and his sister, and there's nothing more sacred than that. So yes, it's scary as anything, but it's also exciting 
And if you take years to try to figure it out, by the time you say, let's shoot it, you feel pretty good that you have a handle on it. Well, I remember, I remember when you first contacted Goldman to say you were, you know, through Michael or however it happened. And he called our house and said, Judd wants to do this with me. You know, all of my wife started crying and everybody in the family felt like, oh, here's Gary, the best comedian, you know, arguably the best joke writer in the world. Yes. And, and not recognized for it in the way that he should be at that time. And you decide you're going to do this and about that subject matter, because you and I haven't talked since the we've talked online a bunch. But we haven't talked about this, the Goldman thing. So I want to touch on it because I do think it's the comedy special of the year. And it changed, you know, it changed his life completely. And and for for us, for Amy and me, it felt like, well, Amy in particular was there to help change, change, help Gary change himself along with Sade so he could get to the point of doing this. Yes. But then, <laughs> you know, you took it from there and like, you know, took the baton and helped him get it across the finish line. And are you aware that that, you know, when you make a call like that and you say, I'm going to do this with you, are you aware of the ripple effect of that? And does that feel pressurized to you or does that only feel like, okay, this is going to be a win? I, I. Once I make that call, I'm, I'm sort of guaranteeing in my head that it's going to be a win. I think when I ask someone to do that, I so believe in them that I feel like we're going to pull it off. <laughs> that's, that's, that's how it starts. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I, I do yes. have a confidence from watching what you know, someone like Gary is doing that the work is insightful and funny and brilliant and it deserves to be seen and... I, I think the, the best part about having a track record and having people look at my list yes. of projects and go, you know, they go, well, most of them are pretty good. Like, I don't, none of them are disaster. Uh, you know, some of them have made money, some of them lost money, but... No, but the, that's a big deal. Not being disastrous is a, yeah. in this business, a big deal, man. Yeah. yeah. The, I mean, the, the, even the ones that didn't work the best are, are noble efforts and people are proud. And for the most part, they do well enough. And every once in a while, something breaks out. So if I can give that credibility to someone like Gary and also an environment where we're going to be tough on him and ask hard questions and develop it with him, but also we're going to yes. protect him and he has final say over everything so that it's, it will always be his piece of art, then yes. I feel like people can do their best work because they feel like, okay, I'm not in a scary situation because you know that uh, when you're a comedian or a writer or a director, sometimes you accidentally connect to people who don't understand what you're doing. Uh, and yes, they, absolutely. And, and the, notes, the notes make no sense. And the project starts spiraling out. And so the best thing I can do with someone like Gary is just go, I have your back and I get what you're doing. And here's how I think you could make it better in a way that inspires him and gets him excited and not scared that at the last minute, Judd's going to find a way to fuck this up. No, he felt, I mean, yeah, hundred percent. He felt totally taken care of through that whole thing in the, in the best way. And then when it, when it hit, man, did it feel like, uh, did you feel great about the fact that when it happened, because I, I found it so moving that, you know, when the special is incredibly moving and being there when he recorded it, but I found the reaction to it so deeply moving. And uh, like, you know, because you guys did this incredible amount of good, like people felt seen this thing we just started by talking about this thing that you're interested in people who are, uh, uh, you know, in a way showing people that you can, that they are seen, that they matter. 
all these people reacted to Gary's special in such an incredibly deep way so that it, it changed his career, obviously, and put him in the place he's supposed to be in professionally, but also it did a world of good. To me, it's like a win in every way. Are, did it feel like that to you? Uh, it definitely did. You know, we had a similar experience when we did the Chris Gethard HBO special, which was right, called of course. Uh, Career Suicide. And Chris's special, uh, you know, w- was an incredible one-man show about, you know, his, his journey uh, with his, uh, you know, uh, mental health issues and, and, and suicidal ideation. And it resulted in him getting tens of thousands of messages uh, on Facebook from people who felt seen, who felt like him expressing this gave them hope. The fact that he had found a way through it and he talked about, you know, how he got through the hard times. So when we met Gary, we thought, well, this is important. This type of work is important. And I also thought there shouldn't just be one of these. (laughs) It's not like we, we did it once, let's never do it again. And, you know, when I was working with Pete on The King of Staten Island, you know, he said to me, Kid Cudi's music, which discussed his mental health uh, issues, was what helped Pete get through it as a kid. That there was someone that related to what Pete was going through. That voice was so important to him. And that's what I'm most proud of with all three projects. It also raises the question, you know, for me personally, how come you're doing three shows in a row about mental health, depression, and suicide? (laughs) 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 It's clearly on my mind somehow, and I should, you know, talk to my two therapists about it. But I I am so glad that it has that effect on people. Because I see it when The King of Staten Island gets released. I get a lot of tweets and messages from people and you could tell there, there will be people on a difficult night they'll put on gary goldman or the king of staten island and it, it will help them in some way to process or understand themselves or find hope in a moment and that's really what it's there for yeah let let i agree with you let, i completely think that 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 tracks for me uh let's just talk a little bit about the style of the movie you know in your films Sometimes you have a tighter approach and sometimes looser. And here you have a looser approach. Uh, I can feel where where the scenes have some improvisation, not necessarily even just comedic improvisation, where there are times you're letting people say stuff the way that they would say it. And I'm, how do you sort of decide which approach suits the thing? Like when you want it to be exactly on script, when you want it to be... Looser. I mean, you have Bob Ellswit, the best cinematographer in the game, probably, and it, it it's a different approach than Ellswit often takes too with the camera. In that, the camera too has a very kind of a a, a loose and uh, you, you not exactly verite, but there is a verite element to it. In that, often you know Ellswit stuff is highly highly composed, and and here it seemed you were making a conscious effort not to, like, live in that space. I think that when you do comedy, uh, you know, a lot of times you you lock down the camera because people are improvising and playing, and if the camera is moving, there's always the potential that someone will say or do something incredible, and the camera, you'll, you'll just, you'll miss it. 
And I think the biggest choice I made was to not care if I missed it. And yes, to, right. to, to, to shoot this more like a Sidney Lumet movie than right. how I would normally shoot it. And every, every movie you know, begins with a conversation about what should it look like, how should it move. I worked with the Fade and Papa Michael on This Is 40, and I loved how movies like Sideways looked. And so we tried to have that lifelike energy where you really felt like you were living with this family. I think the difference with Bob is we were in a you know, gritty uh, Staten Island and we wanted to, to feel like there was you know, a lack of hope and that Pete was a bit of a manic character and the camera work would reflect the, the fact that everyone is on eggshells around Pete in the film. They're all concerned about him. They all think anything can happen at any moment. And I think that's what he did in, in working in this style. But for me, I think in terms of the comedic style, sometimes it's the, the lead person determines it. You know, Seth Rogen speaks in jokes in real life. He just talks almost in perfect joke structure. And that sets a tone for a reality level and a style because that's really who he is. And, uh, and Pete speaks in this sort of shambling, r- r- rambling way, like not rambling in a bit, but you know, he's, he sort of like finds his way to it. So that was part of what the scenes in the movie were going to feel like. Well, if, if you notice, Pete's never witty in, in the entire movie. Uh, right. You know, it's all character driven. You know, he's outrageous. He's brash. He's honest when you least expect it. He's manic. But it, it, he's not witty. It reminds me of when I worked on the TV show, The Critic. It was one of my first jobs. And I'm the only idiot in the room. Everyone is like Harvard educated. And I remember <laughs> making some dirty joke in the room. And one of the writers, <laughs> I think it was Ken Keeler, said, Ah, Judd, you've outwitted us again. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that because that's Pete's style, it felt like the entire movie should support that, that vibe. And it should feel like the way people talk on Staten Island. I think, you know, in some movies, I'm making a choice to make everyone as funny as they can be. I, lo- you know, I love Albert Brooks and Broadcast News. You know, there are these movies where the writing is just so sharp and funny and, and it's emotional. And I think a lot of times that's what I'm going for. And, you know, sometimes with success and sometimes with limited success, uh, huh. But but in this one, the style of why it's funny was was very different. Yeah, I, it was clear watching it too. I love that you pointed out the witty that this question of what because yes, this movie is less verbal has less sort of verbal pyrotechnics than most. I would say than most of your movies do, and there are pyrotechnics all over the place in terms of like you said the outrageousness or inside characters and what they do. There's the great. Um, run by, you know, by Vecchione, Soder's roommate Vecchione, which I loved seeing, right? Um, And which I I also love that you decided to keep that in the movie, which is just, uh, I I did, I, you know, because you could see someone deciding to cut that out of the movie because (laughs) it's besides, well, no, right? I'm sure it's a conversation you and your editors had. Well, I mean, I'm sure Jay Cassidy, I I know Jay Cassidy a little. There's no way that Jay Cassidy didn't look at you and say, do we need this? 
Right. Well, he he was a big proponent of it, but I think <laughs> I, I think the, that was just a guess on my part. But I, yeah. you know that sequence, which is a Pete's in the firehouse, he's living in the firehouse sequence. You don't want it to be the you know simple Pete learns about life corny montage. So you're looking for things that are off kilter, and Mike Vecchione had had these this amazing run about bedbugs and how they've ruined his life. And what I like about it for character is these guys are not all noble people. They're also right. hilarious and they're pranksters and they're strange. It's not just solemn good people. There's also a neurotic guy who's flipping out about bedbugs all day long. How, how did you find... So, okay, this is useful, I think, for people who write and and want a director directing a first movie. So you said Vecchio ha Vecchio had that great run. How did you find that great run? Like, did Vecchio do that in stand-up? Did you just hear him saying it one day when you were at the table at the cellar? Like, what's the process by which that shows up on set and makes its way into a movie? Someone communicated to me that Vecchio has a problem with bedbugs. And, I, <laughs> and, and I, I assume it's in his act, although I had never seen him do it on stage. Right, right. I, I, one would think that it is, because he's so funny about, about the assault of bedbugs. And, you know, we were shooting different uh, firefighters in different locations. Wait, was with in the, wait, I, want, I want to ask a question, sorry. Was Vecchione in the movie when someone told you that? He was already in the movie? Or this yes. Is, you were going to... Yes, he was so, in the movie. And, got it. And then at some point, we were trying to figure out what firefighter is doing what with Pete during this montage. And we knew that we wanted to show all the different chores. And at some point, someone probably just said, Vecchione's got this funny run about bedbugs. He's, he's, he's obsessed with bedbugs. And, <laughs> and, and, and I think, we, we, I assume we probably did it in rehearsal. But maybe not. I, I don't have a great memory about it. But I know on the day, you know, we shot for about, you know, 20 straight minutes of him talking about bedbugs. And, and, here, and you here, just said to Mike, you just said to Mike and Pete, talk about bedbugs? Is that, yeah. it's not scripted. Yes. It's not written down, right? Zero. It's zero scripted. And then as he does it, we start seeing a shape that we ask him to repeat certain things. And I, and I, I, I don't know about you. I'm sure you do the same thing. As I'm watching anything that's loose, I'm in the editing room in my head. Yes, yes, yes. yes I'm yes, just yes. going, okay, that's, that's, that took 38 seconds. How can that happen in 12 seconds? And I'm, yep. I'm asking him to adjust during it, and I'm imagining how it'll function. But what usually happens is none of it does wind up in the movie. There were an enormous amount of runs that didn't make it. There was a great run where Bill was at dinner at the college with the family, Bill Burr, and he's yes. just explaining why Boston is great. And he's explaining why it's better than New York. And he's like, you know, they, they even got better pizza. Even the pizza's better in Boston. No one <laughs> talks about it, but <laughs> it's better in Boston. Uh, and uh, he's talking about the Channel and the Red Sox and, and tons of hilarious stuff. But when we got into editing, we realized that we had this one run <laughs> where they talk about going to see the play Stomp. And it was enough to, to serve the purpose of Pete listening to Bill babble and hate him. Yes. As, as he you becomes didn't... part of their family. And, and how does it work with people who are less, like, I thought, I thought Marissa Tomei was just mind-bogglingly great in the film. God, I, I just wanted to watch her endlessly. Um, everything is in her face. I mean, she's just one of the great performers, I think. Um, 
but I do I looking through the movies she's done, I'm not sure she's been in much that's that sort of has this um, improvisational feel. So how did you get her like sort of used to it or comfortable with it? Or are those scenes shot in a way that's more tied to the script? She's one of those funny people who will say this isn't my thing. Although yeah. she was in an amazing movie by the Duplass brothers called Cyrus uh, with Jonah Hill and John C. Riley, that couldn't right. be better, that I believe was you know, heavily improvised. Uh, so how I would do it is I would just do it in rehearsal a lot. You know, we just spend a lot of days riffing in rehearsals. Some of that is to find ideas that we can bring back on the stage. Some of it winds up in the script. And it's also to just get comfortable sitting with Bill Burr, talking and building a rapport and sitting with Pete. You know, how do they feel as, as a mother and, and son? Can I get them to a place where they actually seem like they are related? And that requires right. rehearsal just to get used to looking at each other and, and getting a sense of each other's rhythms. You know, Pete has weird rhythms and Marissa's trying to figure out how she would yes. react to Pete because, especially in rehearsals, Pete's really nervous about making the movie. <laughs> and so we haven't started shooting yet. He's uncomfortable. And she sees all of his real pain in the rehearsal. It's not like she's working with an actor. She's working with someone that's really experiencing it. And I, I think that, that that process allowed her to figure out, however she does, how a mother would react to a son that is in constant crisis. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, she's uh, everyone's going to be talking about Burr's performance, and rightly so. But I do think what Marissa does in the movie makes the movie work. Oh, yeah, because the, yeah. it's the it's the key relation. It's the key way that we look at what's going on with Pete is sort of through Marissa's eyes. You know, you know. And and we wanted to tell a story about what it's like to be the parent of somebody who self harms. You know, we don't hit it on the nose that much. But yes. that is the subtext to the movie, is that they've been through this trauma, he, and her son is having a hard time figuring out how to get his life together. But also, there's this danger that he's the guy in the car closing his eyes. And so the idea of dating or having her own life actually, in her mind, puts her son in danger. And that's, that's the cycle they're locked into. She doesn't know how to have boundaries with him. She doesn't know when to push him out of the nest because she's nervous about this. And well, it's a wonderful, wonderful moment with his sister, with, with your daughter, when he, when, when he says, you know, she says something like, are you going to hurt yourself? And he goes, probably. Probably yeah. it's going to, you know, pro yeah. probably I am. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I know, I mean, it's great because it really does set the table for sort of what you're wor worried about. Uh, Bill Burr's politics and yours are not exactly the same. Does that stuff ever come up? I don't even know if that's true because we never talked about it once the entire process. Well, it might not be true. But just from his last special, it's like, yeah. I don't think he exactly, I'm sure, I can't imagine he, he doesn't see Trump for who Trump is. But I'm saying just, you know, uh, when I look at his his comedy, he draws certain, you know, he, he looks at the world from a certain perspective, let's say. That's not like you're, so you don't care about that stuff in terms of casting people. You'd cast somebody whose politics wildly diverge if you like their work and they're a good person. 
I mean, I love Bill Burr's comedy. I think he's unbelievably funny. I, I, I love the whole conceit of the point of view of his act. That doesn't mean I listen to every routine and say that's exactly how I feel. But I, I think he's brilliant. And as someone, who's worked, with, as someone who's, who's worked with him, I think he's the most fierce comedian I've ever seen. Every performance, even in, the, in situations where the stakes are low, Bill is doing it like it's Madison Square Garden. And I, I really think that he is an important voice. And, yeah, we're all debating, like, what should we talk about? But, you know, for me, I want all the different opinions. I don't like uh, cruelty. That's the only thing that sometimes bumps for me. But it doesn't... But But we all have different ideas about what what makes something cruel. Sure. Uh, and yeah, I feel like course. Bill has a big heart, and I always see that in everything that he does, and he really was amazing to work with. Just so he, smart and sensitive, and I just had the best experience with him, but I, I also didn't feel like, let's start the day talking politics, because the issues are so intense that it would just distract from what we're doing because we, we only have so <laughs> yeah. much time and so much energy. Yes. And, and I don't think that we would solve anything in that conversation <laughs> that would help the world. Uh, but I do think I, we would be on the same side of uh, most issues more than you would, more than you would think. I, I believe it. You would know way better than I would. How did you know he could pull it off? He did an episode of Crashing. Yes. And he was fantastic. And I watched the dailies. And I just thought, why isn't Bill doing more of this? He, he oh, that's was awesome. so funny and human and also very comfortable being vulnerable and sweet. He just had so many other sides. And I know, you know, he does amazing work on uh, F is for Family and he was great in, on Breaking Bad. But this clearly wasn't uh, his career focus to be an actor. And I think that he's as good as they get. And, and having collaborated with him in the rehearsals and on set, I mean, so much of what he did is from him in improvisations, in discussions. And I, I think it's, it's a beautiful relationship because the movie is really about can a kid let a new father figure into his life? And you love Bill. And you can tell Bill loves Pete. And so it's fun to watch them fight and yeah, do he this dance. Yeah, he's totally as lovable as you could possibly be in the movie. Well, Judd, um, man, thanks for doing this. It's great to get to talk to you. Uh, I'm really glad you got to make this movie. And uh, if this represents the end of a certain kind of triptych, uh, or if it's just the first of your decalogue about this kind of depression, I'm in for whatever comes next. I'm ready. Seven so, more. Let's do it. <laughs> all right. Good, man. Uh, good Good to talk to you. You can find Judd on Twitter. He's on there. I think you're on Instagram, too, though. I don't, I don't I know am. for sure. I am. And so is my and, cat, Honey Apatow. Great. So, you know, that's the most important Instagram account. So follow the cats on Instagram. You can find me at Brian Koppelman. You can write me the moment, bk at gmail.com. Save your emails telling me why I'm wrong about the president. All right, Judd, take care, man. Talk to you soon. Be well. Thanks, Brian.